Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. So it's my great pleasure today to welcome to the G Word, uh, Dr. Nick Ciro, um, who's the CEO and chairman of the AKU Society, which we're going to be talking about, um, also the co-founder and chairman of Find a Cure, and is a fellow of the Ashoka Global Fellowship of Social Entrepreneurs, as well as uh, various other achievements. Um, Nick, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. As well as the roles that I just mentioned, you seem to have more uh, degrees, doctorates and uh, masters than is kind of fair, really, in a normal allowance. Tell us a little bit about the different things that you've both sort of studied and done. How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So um, my studies have kind of gone in all kinds of directions. Uh, The first degree I did was in history and economics at Oxford University. And uh, that was in the early 90s. And I really didn't have much of a clue what I wanted to do after that. So I then went to do an MSc in business management uh, in France, uh, which is where I'm from, and then came back to the UK and ended up in journalism, actually working for a think tank, and then a newswire that was bought out by Reuters. And then actually, I discovered a real passion for journalism. I did a master's. uh, So that was in evening studies in journalism studies at Westminster University. And then I realized that what I really wanted to study, because I just found studying really interesting, was uh, media studies and social psychology. So whilst I was working for an international NGO working in developing countries, uh, in my spare time, I was doing a PhD on the Make Poverty History campaign of 2005, you know, and that was absolutely fascinating, Mm -hmm. particularly all the social psychology, you know, the understanding of how beliefs are formed, how collective behavior is formed, how social movements develop, the impact they have on policy, all those kinds of things. And that was fascinating. Um, But it was really done purely out of intellectual curiosity. You know, I had no intention of kind of becoming an academic or anything like that, you know, but it was fascinating and opened up the whole world of research and how that is done. You know, now looking back uh, 15 years later, 20 years later, uh, even 30 years later, I suppose, at my kind of educational uh, career, I think what would be much more helpful today would have been would have do, been studying natural science and biology, you know, um, because uh, for the past 20 years, I've been working on the ultra rare disease Alcaptonuria, which we call AKU or black bone disease, uh, which is a disease that affects both my children. Uh, the first one was born in 2000, the second one in 2003. Uh, both of them were diagnosed shortly after birth with this rare, rare genetic disease. And that um, moved and put me onto a journey, really, in rare diseases and medicine and, you know, kind of science and all those kinds of things. Whilst what I was really interested in at the time was international development um, I'd set up an NGO called Solar Aid in 2006, doing solar power in Africa and developing countries and all that, and really had to swerve over and in 2010 went full time into kind of research for AKU. 
And that was a steep learning curve because, as I've just said, most of my uh, education was not really in that area, you know, and science is tough. And uh, you have to learn a lot. You have to learn all the jargon. You have to learn how it works, you know, and it's moving at such a pace. Um, so, yeah, that was real change of trajectory. Um, I'm, I'm slightly terrified by how many times in that brief story you just said casually about doing things in your spare time like a PhD. So it must have it must have been quite a, a moment, I guess, to say, actually, this is not something I'm going to do in my spare time. This is something I'm going to do full time is get up to speed on this understand what the research is and really try and make a difference both for my kids and, and more broadly. I, I guess a lot of uh, people who listen to the pod um, are either affected by rare disease themselves or maybe have a, a child or a family member um, who is. And I've been hugely impressed by the level of um, self-taught expertise kind of in the community. What do you think gave you either the, the drive or the confidence or I don't know what it was to say, actually, I'm not, I'm not quote unquote, just gonna become expert on this in terms of understanding these conversations and the jargon and so on i'm actually going to change my day job so to speak to to do this so how did you make that decision yeah so basically what i looked at was what skills i could bring to the table um so aku is ultra rare affects roughly one person in half a million um it's a single gene defect enzyme malfunctions and uh, my kids basically accumulate an acid called homogentistic acid at 2000 times the normal rate and that binds to cartilage and bone it goes black in a process called ochronosis and that's why it's called black bone disease so when they're kids they're okay but when they get into young adulthood uh without if they're not treated they develop all kinds of joint problems spinal breakdown uh, eye problems, heart problems, you know, it's, it's a multi-systemic disease and can get really, really bad and disabling. Um, and so um, for the first seven or eight years, I was involved with the AKU Society. I was yeah, doing it in the evenings and weekends and all that. And then um, there was a trial of a very promising drug that took place at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda in the US. And unfortunately, that trial failed. So in 2009, uh, our charity, the AKU Society, we organized a scientific conference in Siena in Italy. And the person who had run that study at the NIH uh, came and gave a presentation and said that the results were negative. And everyone was devastated because the drug, which is called nitisinone, stops the accumulation of this acid like in its tracks and so should stop the progress of the disease. And so um, I was uh, very closely linked to a bunch of scientists, clinicians and researchers in Liverpool at the University of Liverpool and at the Royal Liverpool University Hospital. And we got together and we thought we really need to give this another go. Now, as I said, my expertise is not in science, but what I am good at is fundraising and networking. You know, And so I thought I need to really you know, put 100% of my time in this. And the reason for that is uh, very few people are going to work on an ultra rare disease that affects your children, if any, you know. And we were very fortunate to find these people in Liverpool who were interested. Um, while solar, which is what I was doing in Africa through solar aid, we were constantly getting people who wanted to work in that. So I thought, really, I need to put my efforts into my kids' rare genetic disease. So I moved over to that. I asked my family uh, to support me uh, for the first year and a half till we raised enough funds so that I could actually start having some kind of salary, you know. And, um, and it kind of really developed from there. And so what I worked on was putting together a consortium. So we put together a consortium of 12 partner organizations. We had 
Liverpool Hospital as the coordinator and main clinical trial centre. We had another clinical trial centre in Paris at the Hôpital Nicaire, where they have a metabolic disease group. And then another clinical trial centre in Slovakia, in a place called Piestini outside Bratislava, because in Slovakia, it's actually not that rare as a disease, you know. And then I managed to convince uh, the company, Sobi, Swedish Orphan Biovitrum, who owned the rights to the drug, to come on board. And that was tough because after the failure of the American trial, the company were just like, this is too difficult. This disease is too rare. Uh, our patents running out, uh, you know, and we managed to convince them. And then um, we basically wrote a hundred page proposal to the European Commission. Uh, when they did a call for proposals and out of 1000 applications, we came first and that allowed us to secure 6 million euros in funding that then allowed us to do the clinical studies of this drug, which was successful. And the drug was approved exactly a year ago by the European Medicines Agency and the European Commission uh, as a license across Europe and the UK. Wow, that's in incredibly inspiring um, journey. And you know, I can only take my hat off in terms of the, the energy and determination to, to pull all of that together. There are a few things in that story that I would love to just unpick a bit um, and kind of scratch at. One is um, the US trial that the National Institutes of Health led, um, that that failed, despite, as you say, actually stopping in its tracks the accumulation of the acid. Um, I think there's something really interesting there about, without wanting to get too geeky, about how clinical trials are designed and what that actually means. Like, what are your reflections on the fact that that clinical trial failed and then actually having another run at it, it's now been approved and, you know, um, what was different the second time around? Yeah, I, I think that goes right to the crux of it and particularly for rare uh, genetic diseases you know one of the problems you have with rare diseases is that the fact that there aren't that many patients you know to run a large clinical study now in hindsight i mean we're very good friends with the team at the nih you know they're a great bunch they've been studying aku now for more than 20 years you know uh, and so we always invite them to our conferences and we go and see them we're in the states but in hindsight what we learned from their study is that it was too small it was only on 40 patients it wasn't long enough it was only on for three years and also the endpoint that they choose, which is the evaluation criterion, you know, to evaluate whether the drug is working, was just a single endpoint, and that was hit rotation. So what they looked at and what they believed had come out of their natural history study was that if you measured hit rotation, you should be able to see an improvement in the disease. But the problem is, is that AKU affects people very differently. Some people, it's the hips more. Some people, it's the shoulders. Some people, it's the spine or the ankles and all that. So it showed nothing. And despite that, our patients who are on the study were saying this really works. I feel much better. I'm more mobile and everything. But it showed nothing. And I think one of the problems was actually with the FDA. You know, um, the FDA wanted a clinical, a single clinical endpoint. And I think their demands often for rare genetic diseases are, 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 are unrealistic. You know, and we still have this similar problem now with nitizanone not being approved in the US and we're trying to figure out how to get it approved and all that. In Europe, it was very different. So in Europe, um, we developed a plan, okay, for how to look at it. Um, as an AKU society, as a charity, we had funded 
a three-year study at Liverpool Hospital under Professor Ranganath, who had basically developed what a composite endpoint, so a severity score index, which scored all the different parts of the body that were affected by EKU. So that meant that with that score, you could evaluate over time whether the disease was progressing or getting better and all that. And we used that at the center of our clinical study. And we went to see the European Medicines Agency for scientific advice in November 2012. And what they told us is that they wanted to see the homogenetic acid as the primary endpoint. And as the secondary endpoint, they wanted to see an improvement in this um, severity score, even if it wasn't statistically significant, they wanted to see an improvement. And that was fantastic because what we showed in our phase three trial is that the drug reduced the acid by 99.7%, which is unbelievable. And we saw a statistically significant improvement in the severity score index, you know. And we believe that it's because the regulator was flexible because they understood the disease because they were open-minded and all that. We believe that's why, you know, we ended up having a really successful trial. And without wanting to lead the witness, it feels to me that this is an example of not just the, the sort of ethical importance, but the practical importance of actually having uh, patients and research participants and like families' voices in these kind of stages of the process, right, in clinical trial design. Because to some extent, I'm, I'm guessing, if I was someone who suffered from AKU, I would say, okay, hip flexion is definitely a thing, but actually there's a much broader understanding of my quality of life and how I'm feeling and so on, which you were saying is kind of reflected in this in this composite um, index, whereas the hit point is, is effectively just a proxy for that. So let, let's actually measure the thing itself rather than this proxy. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think that is fair. And the point that you were making that uh, patients and scientists and all that need to be involved very early on, I think is crucial, uh, particularly for rare diseases, because no one understands the disease better than the patient, you know. And what we also found is that uh, working across several centres is really important because no one single centre has a perfect understanding of the disease. This needs to work at an international level. And that's why we were so grateful that the European Commission funded this trial. You know, And that's why we were so worried about the impact of Brexit on European collaboration. But I think that is, you know, being being kind of sorted out with the Horizon Europe project, although I'm not fait with the latest details, but international collaboration is crucial. And so the other thing that we did is uh, we worked with local patients uh, across Europe and across the world to set up their own patient groups. So my parents uh, set up an AKU site in France. Um, some patients set one up in Slovakia. Um, a doctor um, whose family is affected by AQ set one up in Jordan. And we had 19 patients from Jordan who participated in the study. We've got uh, a patient group in the Netherlands, in Germany, in Italy, uh, Indonesia, Brazil, the US, Canada, you know, just India, everywhere, really. And that's very important because that allows you to federate and to bring together the patients and to massively increase the impact. And how did you find those groups or how did you yeah, pull that pull that kind of network together? Yeah. So um, when we set up the AKU site in 2003, we knew of four patients. Two of them were my kids. Uh, one of them was the founder of the AKU site, who sadly has passed away since then, uh, Robert Gregory and his sister. 
basically. And so what we did, um, this was from 2006 to 2009, we got some funding from the National Lottery, from the big lottery fund, and we basically mailed uh, all 50,000 GPs in the UK with photos of the symptoms and a little questionnaire. And that allowed us to identify around 65 patients in the UK. And then really the power of the internet, you know. So once we'd set up a website, we translated it into different languages, you know, people will Google their symptoms, you know, particularly when they don't have a diagnosis. Um, one of our um, main chief fundraisers at the moment is the mother of a patient in Brighton and um, he's 10 and um, she Googled the symptoms, you know, black nappies, black urine and all that and came across alcaptonuria and went to see her doctor and said, I think my son has got this and he got the proper test done and he got, you know, but so what happened is we were contacted from around the world, people, you know, in the Netherlands, in France, in the US, in India, you know, Jordan, wherever. And so we built this database of, of, of patients and then when we found the right people, we were like, well, why don't you set up a local AKU society and see what you can do to make things work? You know, so, um, I mean, the Internet has changed everything for groups like ours. I mean, for everybody, it's changed everything. But particularly if you think about it before the Internet, say 40 years ago, how would a rare disease patient group operate? You know, you'd be sending out uh, printed newsletters, maybe doing telephone trees, um, you know, having maybe one gathering every year, every two years. It was really difficult. But now with so social media, with all that kind of stuff, it's allowed us to really build an actual movement. Well, that's that's fantastic. And I think, as you say, it's a, it's a testament to the power of, I guess, connectivity that we have. It's a, it was interesting, actually, as I was doing some of the uh, reading before we spoke, it was, it was fascinating to me that AKU was actually one of the first conditions that was flagged as an inherited cause, even kind of at the time that the whole field of genetics or the concept of genes was being developed, it was clear that this was um, a hereditary um, condition. That was that I think was back in 1902, and now more than a century later, there's actually a cure found for it. In the work that you've done more broadly um, with Find a Cure, um, building on the the um, the experiences that you've had with uh, AKU. What's your sense of whether we can now uh, be more hopeful at scale, I guess, that we start to find not just diagnoses, but also treatments for many of these rare or ultra rare uh, conditions? Yeah, so things are moving you know, fast, but still not fast enough, I think, for, for those of us who are in patient groups. I mean, the evolution of uh, gene therapy, you know, that's been now being developed for, for decades, but we seem to be reaching a time now where these are starting to come to fruition. So I think it's pretty hopeful. I mean, last time I checked, I think there's around 7,000 rare diseases. I mean, some people say 6,000, some people say 8,000, some people say there's five new ones detected every week, you know, um, but there, there's just thousands of them. And uh, last time I read about it a few weeks ago, I think only 400 have actually got therapies, you know, so there's still a long way to go. You know, and so um, what we did uh, with Find a Cure, so I set up Find a Cure as a charity um, seven, eight years ago with a friend called uh, Tony Hall, who is an expert in orphan drug development and who was instrumental in helping us uh, design the plans for the AKU clinical trials. And so we set up Find a Cure uh, for a number of reasons. Um, one of the reasons was actually to help patient groups, you know, particularly what we call kitchen table patient groups. So these are often parents of children with a rare disease. 
Um, they've just been diagnosed. Uh, there's no patient group. And they're just like, what do we do? You know, and so what Findicure does is provide them with training, you know, how to set up a charity, how to fundraise, how to work with scientists, all those things that we had to discover ourselves. So it accelerates the process uh, and then provides them with peer mentoring, you know, mentoring by uh, more established patient groups or, or others and all that. But the other thing we looked at um, was drug repurposing. You know, and that is the whole idea that you take an existing drug and you reuse it for another disease, which is exactly what has happened for AKU. So the drug nitisinone uh, that we successfully developed was actually a weed killer. You know, it was developed as a weed killer in the 80s by a, a scientist who was uh, gardening and he noticed that around his Australian bottle brush plant, there were no weeds. And so he synthesized the compound and they developed it as a weed killer, although they never developed nitisinone itself and commercialized it. But an analog of nitisinone, misotrione, is now the, one of the most successful weed killers in the world. You know, And because it works in the tyrosine pathway in plants, they thought it could work in that pathway in humans. So they thought it could work for a disease called tyrosinemia type one, which is a nasty rare disease. And that's the same pathway as AKU. So it's been approved for tyrosinemia. And that's why they then thought we can repurpose it for AKU, which is exactly what we did. You know, And it's a huge benefit in that. You don't have to go through all the toxicology. You don't have to go through all the phase one studies, all that kind of stuff. And so what Findicure does is try to promote this concept of drug repurposing and, and all the issues around there. And so that is another, I think, um, really area of hope for rare diseases. And that was something that we, of course, saw really come to the fore in the COVID pandemic as well, with the repurposing of drugs like dexamethasone, baricitinib, and, and many others as well. Right? Um, and, and I guess it comes back to that point of speed and, and efficacy and or, you know, already knowing about uh, toxicity and so on. I guess if we turn maybe back to your personal story, in, in the context of you doing these great things with AKU and then more broadly with Find a Cure, how has your family story uh, sort of evolved and played out? So um, things are going well. Um, so about 10 years ago, uh, we worked uh, very closely uh, again with Professor Ranganath at Liverpool, Royal Liverpool University Hospital. And we got funding from NHS England to set up a specialist uh, national AKU centre there, which has been running ever since. And so both my boys have been going to that. My eldest one's been going for the past four years and my youngest one for the past uh, two years or well, year, two visits. And they're on the drug. They're on nitisinone. Um, their homogenesic acid levels have plummeted. You know, uh, they have to go on a low protein diet to deal with any side effects from the drug. But so far, that's going really well. You know, so we're hopeful. And um, we funded um, a mouse model of AKU um, in Liverpool, um, which is still ongoing. And when you give the drug at birth to the mice, they develop no symptoms. When you give it halfway through life, it completely halts the symptoms. So at the moment, we're giving the drug to uh, AKU patients from age 16 onwards, you know, and we hope that will prevent um, any of the, at least the worst symptoms from emerging, you know, so so things are looking pretty good. You know, we're, we're, we're pretty pleased. Uh, the center works well. Uh, you know, the patients are really happy of what's going on there. Unfortunately, there was COVID, so the centre had to close for at least a year, but it's opened again and stuff. So, um, yeah, things aren't too bad. And my eldest son is now at uni, uh, at Cardiff Uni, and my youngest is taking a gap year, basically. Fantastic. That is just so great to hear. Um, and um, <laughs> I'm getting nostalgic now for my own gap year, but I mean, what a great what a great time of life. And that's, that's brilliant that um, they have the chance to you know, experience those um, those normal, happy, positive, positive uh, experiences. That's great. One of the 
purposes of this podcast is to um, what we loosely call kind of have a national conversation about um, about genomics as it comes more into the mainstream of, of healthcare and society and so on. Um, as someone who's thought about these kinds of topics and um, particularly their impact on um, on families and, and I, I love the the level of kind of societal mobilization that um, you've encouraged, enabled, kind of catalyzed through the things that you've done. What are either some themes or some people who you think don't get enough attention and we should try to amplify through uh, bringing them onto the pod? Well, I, I would, uh, as much as possible, be speaking to other rare disease uh, patient groups, you know, uh, particularly, I mean, there's the established ones, you know, that do lots of good work, but particularly, I'd say the early stage ones, you know, um, and, and, and one of the things I think is really important in, in rare diseases and in rare disease patient groups is just how difficult it is. You know, the reason for that is, and that's why we set up Find a Cure, one of the reasons is that, um, you know, say you're a parent and, you know, you've got a young child and they've just been diagnosed with a rare genetic disease and the symptoms are quite debilitating. You know, generally what happens is one of the parents will stop their job uh, to care for their child and the other one will be working, you know, even more to earn some money. And then, you know, in the evenings when they've got a bit of time free, they'll be trying to run their patient group, you know, but it is really, really tough. And my big call to industry, uh, to government and all that is we need more funding for these patient groups, you know, not massive amounts, but enough for them maybe to hire at least one professional member of staff who can do all the legwork so that they don't have to do it at 10, 11, 12 in the evening and all that. And so that they can actually stand on their own two feet and they can really start, you know, whatever they need to do, whether it's patient support or drug development and stuff. So I think if you could bring on some of these kind of early stage patient groups, but also I think uh, those who have really managed to succeed and scale up, you know, you'd get a really good variety there. Maybe almost as a sort of added bonus for listeners, um, one of the themes that we have come back to a lot um, in various conversations on the pod is around um, trust and how organizations and institutions can um, change their processes or behaviors to, to be more trustworthy and kind of earn, earn that trust. You mentioned the social psychology of collective behavior when you were talking about some of your studies. Um, and it struck me that there might be an interesting parallel or I guess sort of perspective on some of the dialogue at the moment around uh, patient data, uh, trust in that, the kind of sp spontaneous uh, sort of self-organization of people who have concerns about how GP data was gonna be used, the way that um, I guess the various parts of the system are kind of responding to those concerns and doing more consultation and so on. If you were Sajid Javid or um, Amanda at the NHS, you know, what would what would you be doing to say, how can we harness these kind of collective social perspectives to understand concerns more, be able to respond to them better and and build trust in what we're trying to do with data to actually try and solve some of these problems around identifying, you know, for example, your GP example is a great example of that, right? Where are the patients who have this condition so we can get them self-organized and so on? Um, how can we increase trust in the system? Wow. So increasing trust in the system, I guess, by having better safeguards and all that kind of stuff. But um, I'm not really an expert in that. But what I do know is this. Um, about 15 years ago, I went to see my MP when I was uh, living in London, uh, Emily Thornbury. And um, I told her about our plight with AKU. And she said, what I will do is I will write to the head of research at the NHS and see if I can get you a meeting, which she did. 
And the, um, the head of research, the assistant wrote back saying, I'm sorry, he's too busy. We can't meet you. So then she wrote again, said, that's not good enough. And so he was like, oh, okay, all right, we'll meet you. And so I went there uh, with Professor Ranganath uh, from Liverpool. And uh, the thing we asked for is what the NHS really needs is a national registry of people with rare genetic diseases, you know. And the answer was like, oh, well, that's a bit complicated. It's probably too expensive and all that. It just wasn't good enough, you know. And I really think that's what's needed. And I haven't really been following whether that's kind of developing or not, but that would be so important because what we're trying to do as a patient group at the moment is build a registry, actually a global registry of our patients, because that will allow us to track the evolution of the disease over time, to get a much better understanding of it, you know. And then also it will work for recruitment into new clinical studies. For instance, we're trying to develop an mRNA therapy and things like that, you know, and it will bring them all together in one hub. And I think that's really important. And I think to increase trust in that kind of thing, you just have to have really good safeguards. So the one that we're um, starting to develop is, you know, uh, GDPR compliant. It's also HIPAA compliant for the US and all these things and all that to make it really, really robust. And I think that, that that's probably what I would say is really important. So almost like the sort of kite mark that you have on a toy that says, you know, this has not got lead paint or whatever, you know, it's a safe thing for your kind of two-year-old to chew on or whatever. Super. Um, Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to um, join us on the pod and congratulations again about um, everything that you've achieved in this space. It's hugely inspiring. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to The G Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. I'd appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.